Well, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're in chapter 11. <clears throat> Last week, um, we were down in uh, Washington, D.C. for a couple of days playing the tourist thing. And uh, due to poor planning on my part, um, we left the city um, right at rush hour. Uh, we had a motel that was uh, 30 miles west of D.C., and it took us almost three hours to cover this. I don't know how people live like that. That just would drive me insane. I have like five minute drive home from work. And uh, we got in this, <clears throat> uh, oddly enough, we got onto Ninth Street. It's called the Ninth Street Expressway. They were nothing expressing about it. Uh, we got in a tunnel and just stopped and stayed there. Uh, moved, well, moved a half a mile over the period of the next hour. And uh, I, I'm thinking, and uh, I had the fun part. I was in the uh, passenger seat. My wife was driving because I'd lost my driver's license. And uh, so all I could do is just sit there and pray. Here, here's what I was praying we could have. If you've seen the original Men in Black movie, you remember when they get stuck in the Lincoln Tunnel and Kay hits a button on the car, and all of a sudden they're driving on the side of the tunnel and on the ceiling of the tunnel. I thought that'd be really cool. Uh, the things that we um, would like God to do oftentimes are very meeting very immediate needs, aren't they? I just wish that God would heal me or heal somebody I love. I wish that God would provide for this person's financial needs. I, I, I wish that God would give me a good-paying job, unemployed. A lot of the things that we desire from God, maybe even maybe we don't even get around to asking him for, but we're mindful of it. This is what we need. It's an immediate need, immediate need, immediate need. And when Jesus was here on this earth, there were a lot of people coming up to him with immediate needs, immediate needs. I need this, I need this, I need this. Would you do this, would you do this? And as we've been seeing through Luke, God often answers those, uh, Christ often ministered to those immediate needs. Food, people have been out here in the desert listening to me preach for a long time, they didn't have enough food, I give you food. There's somebody that's demonized, I cast out a demon. Here's somebody who's uh, got leprosy, I heal the leper. Someone who's had a bleeding issue for 18 years and I, I heal her. Here's a, here's a wedding where they've run out of wine and that's a social faux pas so he turns the water into wine immediate needs but Jesus was always trying to help people pivot and see that there was an ultimate need that they had immediate needs great raise Lazarus from the dead awesome but Lazarus died again there are ultimate needs that Jesus came to address. And in this passage in scripture today, we're going to see um, the big one. We have a saying here, we, talk, we, we say the gospel, or the shorter version of the gospel this way. Jesus Christ died blank, blank, blank to save sinners like me. What goes in that blank, those blanks? You can talk in there. Jesus died blank, blank, blank to save Sinners like me. Louder. 
and rose again. Do you ever think about when we say that, that we don't just stop at Jesus died to save sinners? We say Jesus, the gospel is Jesus died and rose again to save sinners like me. Why do we say that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul says, If Jesus is not raised from the dead, you are still in your what? Sins. In other words, if Jesus had gone to the cross without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But had he gone to the cross only and stayed dead, we're out of luck. And so Jesus today, when people were clamoring for additional signs, he'd already given them plenty of them. He said, ah, there's a sign that's more important than all the rest. Let's start reading here, verse 29. Luke 11, verse 29. As the crowd pressed in on Jesus, he said, This evil generation, don't miss that designation, this evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him, that is Jonah, was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to the Son of Man, he's speaking about himself there, will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. The Queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for she came from a distant land to hear the, wis- uh, hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. The people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. Father, I pray for the movement of the Holy Spirit this morning to give us insight, understanding, and delight in the work of Christ, not only on the cross, but out of the empty tomb. And conversely, we pray against the enemy who desperately loves it, when people don't even think about the resurrection or they don't believe in the resurrection as we're seeing more and more even in churches today. Love it when we just gloss over the idea that Jesus died and rose again and because he rose again, we too will rise again. And so we pray that you would muzzle him this morning and that our praise and our worship and even our confidence would be enhanced this morning because Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Jesus is saying that there is an ultimate sign coming. This is before it occurs. Ultimate sign that's coming. Ultimate miracle that's coming. That is that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Now, why in the world did he compare that to Jonah? If you remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, he was a prophet, 8th century um, B.C. And God sent him as a preacher to uh, Nineveh. The city of Nineveh, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire in those days. And Jonah wasn't a big fan of the Assyrians. Now, There were a couple of reasons. One, they were Gentiles, and they had been schooled to think of Gentiles as hostile to their faith, which in most cases they were. 
They also failed to understand that God had meant them to be a light to these Gentiles. And they were were getting the idea we're to stay away from Gentiles. Well, there's some truth to that, but... um, only in the sense that we don't, God says, I don't want you to be influenced by their religion, by their worship, but I meant for you to be a light to them, Psalm 96. So he didn't like that they were Gentiles, and militarily they were a threat to Israel. And so he decided to do what some of us decide to do, run away from God's call. Wonder how many of us could look back on our lives and say, I remember a time like that. When I was in Nevada, I met a pastor there, who had grown up actually in an evangelical free church in Minnesota and uh, went to Nevada to be a forest ranger. And he got a part-time job there and was positioning himself to get a full-time job with the, with the rangers. And later on in the day we were talking, he admitted to me that one of the main reasons he went to Nevada was to run away from God. And sometimes we try to do that only to discover, as he did, that God was of all places in Nevada as well. And uh, over a period of time, God called him to, to the ministry. Jonah decided to run. He headed the other direction from Nineveh. He's on a boat. If you remember the story, storm comes up, and the passengers think they're going to die. And, and they talk to Jonah about um, what's going on. Jonah says, it's all my fault. I'm on the run from God. Throw me overboard, and you'll all be saved. And that's exactly what happened. And then something that stretches the belief of some people is God sent a great fish along to swallow Jonah and keep him alive underwater for the next three days. Now, just as a side note, listen, if, if God can part the Red Sea, what's so hard about a special fish in the water where Nineveh happens or where Jonah happens to be? I mean, if If God could send his own son to bear upon his shoulders our sin, can't God send a fish in a particular sea? So he swallows Jonah. Jonah repents while he's in the the fish. The fish spits Jonah out onto dry land, almost as if he had come back from the dead. And that's the comparison Jesus is making with Jonah. Just as Jonah, he says this in Matthew 12, just as Jonah was alive in the belly of the fish, or dead in the belly of fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be, be in the heart of the earth for three days. And we know that Jesus was probably crucified on Friday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday comes back from the dead. In Jewish uh, reckoning, that's three days. Any part of a day is, is, is a day. And so Jesus is comparing himself to Jonah in that sense. And he's pointing out to the fact, as he has already to his disciples numerous times, the Son of Man's going to be tortured and mistreated and he's going to die then he's going to come back from the dead and the disciples never really understood that until after he came back from the dead and the people that jesus preaching to don't really understand that until jesus comes back from the dead but jesus jesus is saying here look you folks are preoccupied with the here and now the immediate needs that you have and by the way i know that when you ask me to give you a sign it's not legit. You're just looking to kind of delay the, the, kind of putting off the response to my message. Because after all, it says here at the beginning, this evil generation keeps asking me to show you a sign. The resurrection, Jesus is saying, is the sign of the gospel. Not the healings, not the exorcisms, 
not the multiplication of food, uh, not the water into wine. These things are all pointing to the gospel, but they're not the gospel. Ultimate sign is that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Now the point is that Jesus <clears throat> trying to make with people is that immediate signs don't usually convince hard hearts, hence the designation evil generation. Uh, these people wanted signs. He had already given them plenty of signs. He had already healed many people. He had already cast out many demons. He had already done a lot of miraculous things. And so he designates them a mirac uh, an evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign. Look over at verse 16. Others, this is all just prior to this happening, others trying to test Jesus. In other words, their, their plea is not legitimate. Trying to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He'd just done that. He just cast out a demon. They'd already seen miraculous works. They, in other words, this is not a legitimate request. Um, Matthew chapter 16, maybe have you look at that. Matthew 16. These same words where Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah are given here, but there's enough other information that it seems like it was on different occasions. Remember, Jesus taught the, a lot of the same things on a lot of different occasions. So sometimes we see one thing that's recorded in one place in the gospel and another place where it's similar. We think, oh, it's not the same. Um, one gospel writer got it wrong. No, Jesus is going to say a lot of the same things on a lot of different occasions. And here he says... Verse 1, one day the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are the head honchos of the religious community in, in Judaism, they came to test Jesus. There's that word again, testing Jesus. In other words, their hearts are not legitimate. They don't really, and they're not really looking to have additional proof so that they can say yes to Jesus. They're testing him, and he's, again, he's speaking about them, verse 4, as an evil generation. So we have the Jewish people, and now we have the Jewish leaders trying to test Jesus, and he's like, I'm done. The only sign I'm going to give you is my future resurrection because you are an evil generation. Now, my guess is that as Americans, we hear Jesus say that and say, Jesus, you don't know anything about what an evil generation is like. We live, after all, in the good old U.S. of A., a place where last year alone there were 17,000 homicides in this country. A place where 22% of American husbands cheat on their wives and 14% of American wives cheat on their husbands. We know all about an evil generation. If you're applying for a, a new job, statistically they tell us that 40% of us will cheat on our resume. We'll put something in there that's not true. And when you get to people that are doing online dating, 90% of people who do online dating cheat on their profile, say something on their profile that isn't true. They say the number one thing that's not true on there is, can you guess? Yes. How much do I weigh? 90% put something down that's false on their profile. We're here in a, a land in which in a 10 years time, from 2007 to 2017, the number of Americans who not only just say they're okay with, um, they're not just okay with homosexual relations, but they advocate taking the label of marriage from God for 
one man and one woman and apply it to two men or two women. And listen, just common sense says that label is going to be applied to other kinds of relationships in the future. It can't not. In a space of 10 years' time, double the number of people support that. And this year, almost a million little American babies are going to be executed because they're inconvenient. And we say to Jesus, we know what an evil generation is. But wait. Jesus wasn't talking about the culture. When Jesus spoke to these people, he was speaking to the church folks. The folks that are going to show up every Saturday at synagogue. The folks who are teaching their little boys memorizing the Torah. The people who are going to open the scrolls on Saturday, the Sabbath, and read from the prophets and read from Moses. These are the folks that Jesus is calling the evil generation. An evil generation demands a sign. None be given it. Except the resurrection of the Son of Man. You see, even some religious people have hard hearts. And maybe you're a church member here this morning. Maybe you're a church attendee. Whether you're a member here or visiting, you're a member somewhere else. I wonder what it is that you would say is true about your heart. Say, well, how do I know that? Well, when you read something in the scripture that God wants you to do or not do, what's your response to it? When you have an opportunity to speak about Christ, what's your response to the Spirit's prompting? When you have an opportunity to flee sin or run to sin, what's your, what's your response? You have you look at a passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36. By the way, if you have one of the sermon outlines, there's a mistake there. It says Ezekiel 37. It should be 36. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Now, this is in the wake of the Israelites are, as is, seems to be part and parcel of their history, they're on the run, they've been on the run from God, worshiping foreign gods, not doing what God calls them to do, and he's speaking about a future for them. In verse 26, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put, it's a future day coming, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will take out your, what kind of heart? Stony. I will take out your stony, stubborn, hard heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. The sad truth is we can be part of a church, we can be a member of a church and have hard hearts. And because as Howard Hendricks once said many years ago, religion can inoculate us against the real disease. And we do this and don't do that and 
we're very careful about our behavior and 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 we end up looking at our moral success and banking on that we look, end up looking at our church attendance and our church giving and banking on that and our community service and banking on that one of the things that's really exciting to me is i watch a younger generation the millennials and those coming behind them very tuned into and geared toward community service how can i help my community how can i be a volunteer in my community what 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 kinds of effects can i have for the good in my community i think it's awesome and yet that can be its own kind of substitute that can manifest its own kind of hard-heartedness against the gospel banking on what we do rather than what he has done This, this resurrection, I think what Jesus is, is pointing to is this is the ultimate sign that finishes and authenticates the gospel. You're, which is how you're going to be saved, you Jewish folks. Not by your performance. That's what Jesus came to. He came to a people who were absolutely convinced that their performance was what was going to make them right with God. And so when, when Jesus started talking about something other than performance, it was confusing to them. And they concluded he must not be sent by God because surely God would be emphasizing the performance. And it wasn't that Jesus didn't speak to them about works. But he was helping them understand that your surface works may not reflect the reality of your heart. And so he would talk to them about their tithing, even their little their spices from the garden they would tithe. And yet they would mistreat widows. Hearts. Not right. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the hands do it's interesting that jesus uses two illustrations or examples in this passage about people who are not jewish the ninevites that jonah went to see not jewish the queen that went up to jerusalem from the area of ethiopia slash yemen not jewish And it's interesting, Jesus says, when Jonah went to Nineveh, if you remember the story, and he began to preach a message of repentance, lo and behold, they repented. Didn't make Jonah too happy. He didn't like them. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want God to save them. They repented. Sackcloth and ashes from the greatest to the least. Out in the road, maybe, maybe if, we, if we, we show that we're sorry for our sin, maybe God will spare us. And he did. Queen of Sheba hears about Solomon's wealth and Solomon's wisdom. She packs a bag. She travels a long distance to hear this message from Solomon. Obviously, neither, neither of these cases are we talking about the gospel. But Jesus' point was each of these, Solomon and Jonah, had a message for Gentiles. There was a reason Jesus says, okay, I've come to the lost house of Israel, but you've rejected me. I'm going to go elsewhere. There's a reason Paul began to preach to the Jews and they rejected him. He said, fine, I'm going to go elsewhere. 
Romans chapter 9, the first six verses or so, speak about all the benefits the Jewish people had from God. Yours is the patriarchs. Yours is, is the, the covenants. You've got the commandments. You've got all this going for you. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, do they welcome him? Do they receive him? Do they em- embrace him? No. You see, the good news is a message, not just the trappings or the miracles of a message. The sick wanted Jesus to heal them. The demonized wanted Jesus to heal them. The hungry wanted Jesus to feed them. The thirsty wanted Jesus to provide them with drink. But ultimately, Jesus had a message that surpassed food and surpassed water and surpassed shelter. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Listen, you want all these things. I wonder how many of us would say, I want this, I want that, I want money, I want prestige, I want admiration, I want a spouse, I want children, I want a good job, I want a cabin in the mountains. I want all this. And Jesus says, that's all going to go away someday. Do you want what will last? Do you see your ultimate need or just your immediate need or slash desires even those who are pulled from death's door by healing or raised from the dead like Lazarus was eventually gonna die for good let me have you look at a bright passage in scripture 1 Corinthians chapter 15 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, and starting, I'm going to start reading in verse 20. Of course, Paul, Paul is arguing that Christ has been raised from the dead, and he's talked about the implication is he, if he's not, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, he's referring to Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, referring to Christ. Just as everyone dies, because we all belong to Adam, we're sinners, and so we die for our sins, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given what kind of life? New life. New life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Now listen, I don't care how old you are, how young you are. Every one of us here has an expiration date stamped on us. You don't know when mine is, I don't know when mine is. You don't know when yours is, I don't know when yours is. Now at this age and stage in life, it's getting closer and closer for me. When I was 16... I thought, I'm never going to die. Well, I believe theoretically I'd die, but there's going to be a lot of years before I'm die. All of a sudden, I got to where I'm at now, 43 or something. And I'm like, wow. I mean, statistically, this could be my last year, last two years. No matter how young, no matter how old we are, we have an expiration date on us. And all of, the, all of the immediate needs or the immediate wants that we have right now 
will evaporate in our thinking as we breathe our last breath. And all of a sudden, all that's going to matter is our ultimate need. Breathe that last breath. What comes next? That depends. Where have we put our hope? And there are going to be some people, some religious people of the evil generation that in a blink of an eye they're going to meet with God and, and say, I'm good because I went to church a lot. I've got all these attendance ribbons from going to church and I gave a lot of money to church. And, and I went on mission trips. We went down to Texas and we did some post-hurricane work. And I drive my neighbor to the doctor when she needs it from time to time. And, and Jesus is going to say, I'm sorry, I, I don't seem to recognize you. Who do you say you were again? And then there are going to be people who really had nothing to do with God throughout their lives. But they're going to point to the volunteer work that they did with all these civic organizations. I cannot tell you how many funerals I've been at and some I've officiated at where the deceased had zero connection with God. There was no evidence of a relationship with God through life. Even a religious kind of relationship. And family members are banking on all of that good stuff that they did and the bad stuff that they didn't do. I've heard people say, you know, God certainly wouldn't deal with the name of a person in such and such a way because of what they did. I, I remember in the wake of 9-11 and the firemen that were killed in trying to rescue people from those burning buildings. And the assumption was that God would look with compassion upon them simply because of the incredible sacrificial work they were doing in their final hours. And Jesus is, would say to all, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't recognize you. I, who did you say you were again? Rather, it's those who say, I, in the words of the old song, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross and the empty tomb I cling. And as I prayed my prayer, increasingly we see today that people who claim to know Christ in churches that teach Christ think the resurrection is just a bridge too far. And what does Paul say? If Christ be not raised, we are all still in our sins. Praise God that you can't find Jesus' tomb anywhere. Or if you can, there's nobody in it. Or if there is, it ain't him. He is risen. And that's just as good news at Thanksgiving time as it is in Easter. And you can respond, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, thanks for a resurrected Savior. 
the sign of the gospel. And I think back to times that I've talked with people about Christ. <laughs> How easy it is to kind of overlook that vital completion of the gospel. That the Savior not only bled without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. He died and he rose again. Man, that's good news. Because just as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, he's the, he's the first fruits. And so many of us, when that expiration date comes around, we're going to rise as well when Jesus comes back for his own. But because he rose from the dead, we can have confidence that we too will rise from the dead. As I was looking across our property yesterday at the cemetery up the street, saw them erecting the tent over the gravesite, presumably for a funeral, maybe today. And those mourners by the gravesite say goodbye, and the body descends into the cold brown earth and covered over by the dirt. For them to know that the dirt can't hold their loved one there. That the grave can't defeat the dead body of those who put their faith in Christ. That one day there'll be a reunion between the spirit and that body. A body raised to life that can never again get sick, catch a cold, be cold, and never die because of what Jesus did in the empty tomb. We praise your name. Amen.